We continue this week with our I Believe sermon series where we look at different creeds found at the back of our United Methodist hymnal and reflect on how those different creeds speak to us about what we believe as United Methodists. Today we'll be looking at the Korean Methodist Creed. Its official name is an affirmation of faith of the Korean Methodist Church and that's found in your hymnal at page 884, number Um, We're going to read it in the course of the sermon, but it will be on the screen. But if you'd like to look at it on your own, you can find it there in your hymnal. And the scripture I'll be preaching on today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Hear now God's living word. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that all would be pleasing in our presence. You who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. Jesus, in our passage today, gives a mandate to his disciples, just as he's about to leave them. He says that they are to go out and make disciples of all nations to share the gospel message with everyone. The earliest, the apostles, the 12 apostles, they shed blood and gave their lives that the gospel message might be brought to all different parts of the world. Our founder of Methodism, John Wesley, and his contemporaries, since the earliest movement of Methodism, Uh, It's in our DNA to bring the Methodist faith out to all different parts of the globe. And indeed, today, you can find Methodism all over the world. An important point to keep in mind when sharing the gospel with a different people or culture is this. That Christianity and the culture to which you're trying to bring the Christian message must be held hand in hand with each other. You need to take into account the language of that culture the metaphors specific to that culture, their customs, practice, and heritage, their history, when you're sharing the Christian faith with them. Otherwise, it's like trying to speak English to a congregation that only knows Chinese. The core message of the gospel just can't come through unless it's connected with a, per- with a people's authentic experience of their culture. Well, I, I reflecting back on my life, and I think when I was um, just not as aware of the world around me, um, and I wonder if this can be true for others, uh, I think that we as Midwestern United Methodists can have a tendency to believe that our practice of Methodism and Christianity can generally be the same in other parts of our country and world. And that's just simply not the case. There are certainly many similarities, some, more, some cultures more than others, At the same time, there's some marked differences. I want to share a story. My first week of seminary, I I was in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University, and a group of African Methodist Episcopal students who were black, they invited the many white students who were there to come with them to their AME church this, this Sunday. Well, they wanted to give us some pointers on our apparel. They said, okay, so... They add all, you know, this is, these are the black divinity school students talking to a group of white students. And they say, now whatever you do, don't wear khakis to church. 
They said, there's a running joke in our congregation that all white people wear khakis to church. Are you wearing khakis? <laughs> so, uh, so, needless to say, all of us, we had our nice black suits on. The women, they had black on. No khakis. Okay. And everybody at the church had suits on for the most, much more formal than what we, especially at our 11 o'clock service here. Then uh, we get to the service, and I, I take a seat down next to a very nice African-American lady. She's older, and she has a brown paper bag with her. And I say, why do you have that brown paper bag, ma'am? And she, she opens it up, and she pulls out a sandwich, and then she looks up at me and says, Sonny, you're going to be here a while. <laughs> so at hour two of three of the service, it's like a little past 11, I mean, we're having a meal. She's breaking her sandwich, giving it to me. I'm eating some of her cookies. You know, she has a drink in there, some carrots. I mean, it's having a grand time. Well, then we, you know, we come to the sermon. Now, we're, we're eating in the middle of the sermon, and uh, the sermon's been going on like 45-something minutes here, and the preacher, he's black, of course, and he's preaching with such a passion and vibrato that we don't normally see in the white church. But in the black church, that's relatively commonplace. Now, this wasn't a fire and brimstone sermon. This was a Methodist preacher, after all. He's preaching very middle-of-the-road doctrine. And, and there's a lot of love in his words. The manner by which, though, he preaches his sermon is very different than what you typically see here at our church. So he's, he's not screaming, but he's shouting loudly. He's even a few times in the service pounding his fist on the pulpit. You know, but again, to emphasize a point, it's the Spirit working through him. I was moved to tears by his sermon. It so spoke to my heart, I'll always remember that sermon. Now, a question for all of you. If I, in this sermon, started shouting at the top of my lungs, and I started pounding my fist on the baptismal font here throughout the service, would that raise your eyebrows a little bit? Would that make you a bit uncomfortable? I think so. It would. Um, so there's differences in cultures. But you know, if I went to an AME church, and I didn't do that, it would be really noticed, because that's their culture. My point is that wherever Christianity is lived out, it's lived out in the context of its culture. The two must go hand in hand together. And that brings us then to the Korean Methodist Creed. The Korean Methodist Creed is an example of how culture wasn't taken enough into account in its creation. The goal of the creed was that it would reflect what it means to be a Korean United, a Korean Methodist. Excuse, they were not united. I misspoke there. A Korean Methodist, and it just it doesn't capture that point. It describes a lot of Methodist doctrine, but it doesn't highlight the uniqueness of the Korean expression of the Methodist faith in their time. To share more about the Korean Methodist creed, I need to share a bit about how the Korean Methodist Church came to be, because their stories go hand in hand. The Korean Methodist Church was formed in 1930, and it came out of the merger of two separate missionary movements in Korea at the time. The first was a movement hosted by the Methodist Episcopal Church in North America, and the second was hosted by the Methodist Episcopal Church South, also from North America. Well, in 1930, these two strands, these two missionary movements, came together and formed the Korean Methodist Church, and they did this for a couple reasons. One was that Korea was occupied at the time by the Japanese, and it was not a friendly occupation. To this day, there's a lot of animosity between the Koreans and the Japanese. In an effort to coordinate better in resisting the Japanese, the Methodists at the time felt that unifying these two different movements of Methodism in their country could increase the coordination between themselves and the overall resistance to the Japanese. 
In addition, there were a few very powerful Korean lay fam uh, families and laypersons who didn't like what's called the itinerant system. That's the system we have in place here in North America that moves uh, clergy from church to church based on what the bishop and the bishop's cabinet deems appropriate. And the powerful Korean laypeople in Korea at that time, they didn't like that. They wanted their clergy to stay at their churches as long as they and the clergy wanted that arrangement to continue. Well, for those reasons and others, the Korean Methodist Church totally separated. They became autonomous from their North American brethren. And then they wrote their own book of discipline. We have a book of discipline as United Methodists that dictates how the church is managed. So they have their own. And because they're separated from global, uh, in, in our time today, United Methodism, although the United Methodist Church was not named that at that time, they then can have their own book of discipline and structure their church as they like, but still have their Methodist heritage. Well, then, uh, when this merger was happening in 1930, there was a meeting of about 10 Methodist Episcopal bishops who were based in Asia, and they came together. They'd meet regularly to discuss different matters of ministry that were happening in Asia. And uh, they discussed the merger that was upcoming for the Koreans. And the thought was put out there that a creed should be written, uh, should be worked collaboratively collaboratively with the Koreans to write a creed that would reflect what makes their expression of Methodism unique to the Korean culture. In addition, the creed would be used as an evangelical tool that could be shared with people in Korea who had not yet converted to Christianity or Methodism to help them better understand what made Methodism unique in Korea. So that was the explicit goal. Bishop Herbert Welch, a North American Anglo-Saxon bishop, was assigned to oversee the writing of that creed. A committee was formed with a few different Korean laypersons and a Korean professor uh, who were to work with him in writing the creed. The problem was that that's not exactly how it worked out. According to Edward W. Poitras in his article, How Korean is the Korean Creed, Korean Methodist Creed, published in 1994, um, Poitras was a missionary in Korea for three decades and is connected with Southern Methodist University. Poitras has direct quotes from Bishop Welch's journal, and in one of those quotes, Bishop Welch clearly states that he wrote personally the vast majority of the creed without collaboration with the others on his committee. The others on the committee, they offered very perfunctory kinds of remarks and editing of it, but he, 99% of it, was his doing. Now, what we're left with, as we'll see as we read the creed together in just a moment, uh, it's a beautiful creed. And it's highly practical. It's one of my favorites among the ones that we have in our hymnal. When we compare it to, say, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, those are more intellectual. This one, as you'll see, is very much about what does it mean practically to be a Methodist. Again, the, the issue is that it doesn't reflect what it means to be a Korean Methodist. So let's stand together and say it together. The words are on the screen. We believe in the one God creator and sustainer of all things, father of all nations, the source of all goodness and beauty, all truth and love. We believe in Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, our teacher, example, and redeemer, the savior of the world. We believe in the Holy Spirit, God present with us for guidance, for comfort, and for strength. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, in the life of love and prayer, and in grace equal to every need. 
We believe in the Word of God, contained in the Old and New Testaments, as the sufficient rule both of faith and of practice. We believe in the church, those who are united in the living Lord for the purpose of worship and service. We believe in the reign of God as the divine will realized in human society and in the family of God where we are all brothers and sisters. We believe in the final triumph of righteousness and in the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So a person came to me after the service and said, Scott, so if the Koreans had really written the creed and, the, and Bishop Welch had only overseen them and not written it for them, what would it look like? Well, I frankly don't know what it would look like. I don't think anybody does. And that's, I think it would look different. Uh, maybe points would be emphasized differently. Um, perhaps it would have connected with the Korean Methodists of that time and people thinking about joining the faith much more. Uh, but I think the proof is in the pudding for po Poitras's point that this creed didn't connect with the Koreans. After his extensive experience in Korea, he said that this creed is largely overlooked. And at the time it was written, people hailed it as a true Korean Methodist creed, but then uh, in years later, people really saw that it wasn't connecting with the people. And Poitras stresses that if the Koreans had written it, and Bishop Welch had simply tried to work with them and advise them, but not actually write it, we could have had a creed that really became a staple of the Korean Methodist Church and something that even new converts would look to to help them understand the faith that they were joining. But that just simply isn't the case, regrettably. So how do we do this? How do we live out our faith and share our faith to make disciples of all nations? We could also say of all cultures, of all ways of thinking, of different ways of practicing and going through life. How do we do it? That's a pretty monumental and daunting calling, isn't it, from Jesus? Well, I was thinking about this question as I attended a three-day workshop two weeks ago, and the workshop was focused on what's called the uh, family systems theory, and this is a theory that helps explain how we as human beings relate together in our families, in groups, and in larger communities like a church. And one of the ideas the teacher, Reverend Richard Blackburn, presented to us was called the togetherness force. So I want you to imagine a spectrum. And on this spectrum, there's different extremes, and we're trying to go toward the middle here, which I'll explain in a moment. So on one extreme, we have what he would call fusion. This is the end of when to remain together with a person who believes differently than us, we give up part of what makes us unique as an individual in order to maintain the cohesiveness of that relationship. So think about the last time you had an argument before bed with your spouse, and you decided just to agree um, about whatever your spouse wanted so that you didn't sleep on the couch. That's, that's, in a way, fusion of you giving up your position so that the unity of the relationship can be maintained. And on the other extreme could be cut off. And this is where uh, two people totally divorce themselves of relationship with each other in order to maintain their sense of unity. I'm sorry, their sense of identity. Uh, so think about our politicians in our world today who cut off from each other in a way we haven't seen before quite to this extreme, where people across the aisle can't even relate together. That aisle is a chasm. These are people who are sacrificing the relationship to maintain identity. The middle of the road is what we want, and that's what uh, Reverend Blackburn would call being connected. 
This is where we maintain a sense of who, what makes us who we are as individuals, but we maintain the relationship and even can acknowledge differences between to ourselves and a party, but still have that good relationship between us as much as we can manage. So I have an example. I was riding the other day, uh, last Sunday, to our master's center with Merv and Ruth Huckstep. They attended our 930 service. And we passed by Shogun, one of my favorite restaurants in town. And I said, wow, look, that's Shogun. I love sushi. And Merv and Ruth, we were at a stoplight, and they turned around and they looked at me. I'm in the back seat. And they say, we hate sushi. Just like that. And so I could have in that moment, if I was more toward the fusion end of the spectrum, I could have said, you know, y'all are right. I misspoke. I hate sushi too. I don't know what came over me. Uh, let's never talk about sushi again. No, I didn't do that, okay? I love sushi. I, I, that wouldn't be true to myself to do that. Now, I could have gone to the cutoff side of the spectrum, and I could have said, you know what? I hate you, and I'm getting out of this car, and I'm just going to walk the rest of the way. Now, I thought about that. <laughs> but that would have been a long walk. So I stayed in that car, and I chose the middle road. And I then said instead, you know, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Or as another person at 9.30 said, Scott, you could have said, um, sushi is an acquired taste. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we laughed about it and we kept, and I stayed in the car. Now they weren't at church today, so some people wondered <laughs> if that could be a sign that there's some damage to the relationship. I don't know. We'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have, to have a pastoral care conversation with them. Um, so my point though is, as silly as that is, as an example, I think it does get at, though, how that can happen in much more serious matters in our relationships. We can veer toward those extremes and not try to stay connected with those who think differently than us. One way in which we as a congregation live this out beautifully, how we stay connected with those who think and live differently than us, is our great relationship with the mosque that borders our master's center. By Pastor Jane's great leadership, along with other key lay people in our church, especially those at our master's center, a great relationship has been built between us and the mosque. Now, do you see the pastors and many lay people having become Muslim because of that relationship? No. Uh, do you see us, uh, I mean, the other extremists, we could have no relationship with them. And thankfully, we don't have that situation. Instead, we have a cordial, healthy relationship. Sometimes some of our lay people go to their events. They come to ours. Uh, it's, it's a great example of how we have a strong sense of who we are and out of that sense of strength and identity, we have a loving relationship with those who think differently in our own community. Friends, let us celebrate this day that the gospel is indeed all over the world. In South Korea today, 30% of the population identifies as Christian. That's 15.1 million people of the population. Back in about 1884, Protestants came first to Korea, and a few hundred years before that, the Catholics. But it was especially when the Protestants came that Christianity started to spread. So just in about 130, 40 years, Christianity has become a huge part of that culture where it was a very minuscule part of it before that. Praise God. We even look at Africa. Christianity continues to spread quite rapidly there, even though their culture is very different than where Christianity exists in other parts of the world. In our own families, in our own communities, though, there are different cultures. There are different communities. Even here in our church, between our worship services, there are different cultures 
11 o'clock is very different than 9.30. Our master's center has some very unique contours to its worship compared to this service. And what's great is we stay connected. But I wonder who in our families, who in our communities, who in our friend circles thinks, lives, believes very differently than we do? How can we, without pushing our beliefs on them or cutting ourselves off from them, how can we stay connected to those people who are very different than us? How can we allow God to work through our relationship to touch their hearts? And friends, I, I found this a very freeing point from that workshop I attended, that sharing our faith with others has much less to do with a specific phrase, a specific technique, handing someone a pamphlet. You know, it, none of that, I think, is really that effective. I think what's so much more powerful and touches people's hearts is when we simply live our faith and people see it. They see us living out our values, being that solid sense of self, having a strong sense of identity. And then they start to see the incarnate Christ working through us and in the relationship we share with those persons. So let us then celebrate what makes us unique as individuals. Let us celebrate that we are United Methodists in the Midwest with our own unique customs and practices. And let us have great relationships and allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us in those different relationships to touch the hearts of others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.